Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. The materialist conception of reality asserts that all things are reducible to the physical, including life itself. The complex neurological mechanisms at play in the brain and nervous system give rise to consciousness, the essence of what makes you, you. The human mind is capable of highly novel thought, but it is fundamentally like every other species. The difference lies in the magnitude of neurons, some 86 billion in the human brain, compared to around 30 billion in primates or just 4 billion in a dog. However, the fundamental principle that compels humans to act in the world is behaviour. Indeed, it has been said by some that the purpose of life itself is simply to behave. This view is known as behaviourism. Behaviourism dispenses with the complex, immaterial and unmeasurable world of subjective experience that troubles materialists. It argues that stimuli from the external environment and the resulting behavioural response to it is all that is necessary to understand behaviour. Experience might be something of relevance to individuals personally, but it has nothing to do with how we actually act in the world. The behaviourist paradigm came to prominence during the early 20th century through the work of several notable psychologists. The first of these was the American psychologist John B. Watson, who in 1913 published an article titled Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It. The work was a manifesto outlining Watson's position that private, introspective events form no part of human behavior. Rather, all actions are responses to environmental influences or stimuli. Watson wrote, quote, Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. Its theoretical goal is the prediction and control of behavior. Introspection forms no essential part of its methods, nor is the scientific value of its data dependent upon the readiness with which they lent themselves to interpretation in terms of consciousness. End quote. The beauty of the theory was that it was entirely empirical, measurable, and offered the potential to influence and predict human behavior. This form of behaviorism was known as methodological behaviorism. Watson's claim was significant for psychology as the field could now be taken seriously as an empirical natural science based on objective data rather than speculative theories of what appeared to be taking place in the mind. Watson's theory was heavily influenced by the work of the Russian physiologist Ivan Pavlov and his famous dog. As with many discoveries in science, Pavlov stumbled across an intriguing phenomenon by accident. His original experiment had something to do with dog saliva. He would encourage salivation in dogs by placing a powder made of meat near them. However, he soon realised that the dogs would begin to salivate just at the sound of the researcher approaching. This led him to theorise that the dogs would begin to salivate in response to any stimulus which was associated with the meat powder. The dogs did not choose to respond this way, it was automatic, hardwired into their behaviour. Pavlov's work introduced classical conditioning. Classical conditioning begins with a stimulus, something that happens in the environment which acts upon a subject, say a person, or, in Pavlov's case, the dog. A response is the behaviour exhibited by the subject after exposure to that stimulus. Pavlov found three distinct types of response. These were the unconditioned, the conditioned, and neutral. 
and they can be explained as follows. The natural behaviour of the dog to salivate in the presence of the meat powder is an unconditioned response. It just responds to the smell of the food. The meat powder in this case is also an unconditioned stimulus. What Pavlov realised though was that a separate stimuli could invoke the same unconditioned response in the dog. A basic form of the experiment involved a metronome. When the metronome was set to ticking, there was no salivatory response by the dog. The stimulus was neutral. However, Pavlov would offer the meat powder to the dogs whenever the metronome began to tick. So soon, the sound of the metronome would cause the dogs to begin to salivate. The metronome therefore became a conditioned stimulus, and salivation became a conditioned response. The dogs learned to associate the sound of the metronome with being given the meat powder, even without the meat powder being present, and this behaviour was entirely involuntary. Pavlov experimented with many variations of this basic setup, famously using a bell to elicit the conditioned response of salivation. He discovered a range of factors associated with classical conditioning, including the importance of the length of time between the conditioned stimuli and response, too long and the effect would wear off, or if the conditioned stimuli was removed for a period of time, the effect would also disappear, a process known as extinction. However, recognition of some of these finer details didn't come along until much later. Back to John Watson, he took inspiration from Pavlov's work by applying the theory of classical conditioning to humans in the famously controversial Little Elbert experiment. This was first published in 1920 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. Here Watson claimed that humans are born as a blank canvas, a so-called tabula rasa, and through conditioning could be taught to behave in specific ways. To prove it, he set out to condition a fear response in an infant. Little Albert was a nine-month-old baby boy selected for the experiment. Watson exposed the child to a variety of cute fluffy animals and other objects to see if he exhibited any natural fears of them. Little Albert was ambivalent to them all, even masks and burning paper. But for the experiments proper, a white lab rat was placed in front of Little Albert, and as he began to play and pet the animal, Watson would strike a steel bar with a hammer, creating a loud bang. Of course, poor Little Albert got a fright and began to cry in fear. And each subsequent time that Little Albert touched the rat, Watson would again bang the hammer against the steel bar. So, not surprisingly, after a time, if the rat was presented to Little Albert, he would begin to cry in fear. The rat started out as a neutral stimulus, but Watson had made it a conditioned stimulus, eliciting a conditioned fear response in poor Little Albert. Clearly, Watson's Little Albert experiments were unethical and would not be allowed today. And as they included just one child, the findings were limited in their generalizability. But later, more humane work cemented the validity of this type of conditioning, demonstrating that extinction was delayed in children. The notion that children uh, learn like sponges is made all the more salient when considering that conditioned responses persist long after removal of the conditioned stimulus. However, despite the clearly observable effects of classical conditioning, it was evident that it could not be a complete explanation for all forms of learning and behaviour. For instance, it did not account for biological differences between organisms, and it neglected to consider the influence of differing mental states such as mood, thought and emotions, which may influence an individual's susceptibility to conditioning. Clearly, naturalistic traits and drives are observable in humans and animals, but could these explain all types of behaviour in all species? A major figure in behaviorism who was to consider this question was the psychologist and author B.F. Skinner. Skinner followed in the footsteps of Watson, although he was critical of Watson's use of human subjects and the sweeping nature of Watson's claim that all behavior can be explained by observation of external actions. 
So in contrast to Watson's methodological rejection of everything but the observable, Skinner introduced what he called radical behaviorism. And this form of behaviorism built upon the foundations of classical conditioning by introducing theories which did not exclude private inner experience from behavior. For Skinner, everything taking place within the individual, including emotions, thought and physical processes, are also part of behavior. These may in turn be influenced by stimuli from the environment. This is not to say that inner experience could be empirically measured, rather it was to acknowledge that inner experience was as much behaviour as external observable actions and thus it could not be excluded as an influence. Skinner became interested in the field when he realised that not all human behaviour and learning can be attributed to classical conditioning. For instance, a child learning to ride a bike or play the piano does not do so via conditioned responses to external stimuli. There had to be something else going on. Skinner's work extended upon earlier inquiries into this type of learning conducted by Edward Thorndike during the early 20th century. Adding to the zoological repertoire of experimental psychologists, Thorndike observed the, the behaviour of cats in a variety of puzzle boxes. If a subject cat pushed or pulled a lever or cord, the box would open and the cat would be free. After several trials, Thorndike noticed that the cats would learn the correct method of exiting the box, taking fewer and fewer attempts. So he postulated what he called the law of effect, where actions that resulted in desirable outcomes were reinforced and repeated, while those that had no positive effect were abandoned. The idea was simple. Correct behaviour is positively rewarded, incorrect behaviour is discouraged or maybe even punished. And every parent in the history of parenting knows this fundamental principle of learning behaviour. Skinner made the study of this phenomenon his life's work and termed it operant conditioning. Harvard professor of psychology Paul Bloom consolidates Skinner's findings from his work into four tenets. One, everything you are is the result of experience. Two, there's no such thing as human nature. Three, there are no interesting differences across species. And four, because of this we can understand human learning by studying animals. A variety of animals became analogues for human behaviour in Skinner's experiments, and perhaps his favourite were pigeons. Skinner designed a complex box in which pigeons were trained to perform simple tasks like picking on command or even turning around. After the correct behaviour was performed, a small pellet of food would be dispensed, positively reinforcing the correct behaviour. Skinner carefully measured the rate of correct responses to empirically chart the time taken for the animals to learn the desired behaviour, and how altering the rate of delivery of rewards would also alter the effect of conditioning. There's a link to a video of some of these experiments in the show notes. On the face of it, it sounds impossible to train a pigeon to turn around in a circle on command. However, Skinner pioneered the use of a technique known as shaping. Shaping works by rewarding behaviour that approximates the desired condition. For example, each time a pigeon would begin to turn, say take one step in a direction, it would be rewarded, and slowly the behaviour was shaped by rewarding behaviour that was closer and closer to the desired behaviour. Eventually, a pigeon could be trained to turn around in a circle in response to a command. However, as mentioned earlier, if the behaviour was not reinforced regularly, it would disappear or become extinct. Operant conditioning does not teach a pigeon commands, it positively or negatively reinforces a type of behaviour. In his 1957 book, Verbal Behaviour, Skinner turned his attention to how operant conditioning may influence language learning in humans. In the book, he laid out a complex theory of language development based on operant conditioning. Somewhat ironically, he coined a variety of terms to describe how differing environmental stimuli act to positively or negatively reinforce verbal behaviour. For instance, a child asking its mother for a glass of milk results in the child receiving a glass of milk, positively reinforcing the verbal action. Skinner termed this verbal operant as a manned for motivating operation.
1959, the then up-and-coming linguistic academic Noam Chomsky, who you may remember from our series on language, wrote a lengthy review of Skinner's theory. Review might be understating it, Chomsky tore the work to pieces. For example, he wrote, quote, Skinner's work is the most extensive attempt to accommodate human behaviour involving higher mental faculties within a strict behaviour schema of the type that has attracted many linguists, philosophers and psychologists. The magnitude of the failure of this attempt to account for verbal behaviour serves as a kind of measure of the importance of the factors omitted from consideration, and an indication of how little is really known about this remarkably complex phenomenon, end quote. Consider, Chomsky would go on to claim that recursive language learning in humans was an innate uh, pre-programmed capacity within the brain, as evidenced by the rapidity with which children could learn language and words and the complexities of grammatical rules without having to be taught all of them. Language is simply too complex and acquired too quickly for the conditioning principles of behaviorism to offer a satisfactory or complete explanation. Chomsky's criticisms and the advances of other neurophysiological fields would make behaviorism something of an anachronism in the field of psychology and even the philosophy of science, although it was not discarded altogether. Indeed, Skinner's work inspired a behaviorist movement from which several societies and academic journals appeared and continue today. We've seen that behaviorist accounts of human behavior consider only environmental influences. From the perspective of the nature-nurture debate, the behaviorist eschews nature altogether in favor of nurture. The internal cognitive world of the individual is largely excluded from the behaviorist calculus. Chomsky's arguments against behaviorism may have been based on language, but other perspectives were offered which supported the role of cognition in addition to just behavioral influences. Stanford professor Albert Bandura was interested in social aspects of motivation, learning, and aggression. While Bandura initially considered behavior as being influenced through external factors, he began to realize that it could not account for social aspects of learning or the spontaneous behavioral responses seen in many types of social interaction. He postulated that learning is a cognitive process taking place within a social context, relying heavily on imitation. One of his most famous studies was called the Bobo Doll Experiment. Ventura compared the behaviour of three groups of children. Each group consisted of 12 boys and 12 girls, who were grouped according to similar levels of aggression. The first group then watched a male or a female adult behaving aggressively toward a toy doll called Bobo. It was actually like three feet high. It's quite a giant bloody thing. The behaviour of the adults was carefully choreographed. They would hit Bobo with a hammer or throw it into the air while shouting. The next group observed an adult playing with toys in a non-aggressive manner and ignoring Bobo altogether, while the third group was a control group who did not observe any behaviour at all. The children were then primed individually to be slightly aggressive by being given the opportunity to play with a variety of toys. However, soon after they began playing, an adult would approach them and say they were not to play with the toys as these were the best toys and were being saved for other children. Shortly after the priming, the children were taken to another room where a variety of toys were laid out. There were some non-aggressive toys like a tea set and crayons, and also some aggressive toys like a mallet and pegboard and some toy guns. Bobo was also in this room. The researchers then observed how the children behaved over the next 20 minutes. The study found that children who had observed the aggressive behaviour earlier made far more imitative, aggressive responses than those who were in the non-aggressive or control groups. There were gender differences, which I won't go into here, other than to say boys were more physically aggressive than girls. The implications of the experiment are obvious. Children will learn to imitate the behaviour of those they observe, not only parents and adults, but also older children, and also what they watch. 
As a result of this work, Bedura developed what he called social learning theory, which acted as a bridge between behaviorism and cognitive approaches to learning. He believed that humans do not just respond to environmental stimuli, but actively process information and determine how to behave based on an analysis of outcomes. This is not only imitation as seen in the Bobo doll experiment, but also the observation of positive and negative reinforcement of other types of behaviour. Where the behavioural model of learning considered the mental world to be unobservable and therefore irrelevant, Bandura considered the brain as a mediator of stimuli. The field of cognitive psychology began to take off following on from Bandura's work, and this has continued into the fields of neuroscience, which now attempt to understand the precise mechanisms involved in those mediational processes. For example, the discovery of mirror neurons in primates supports the notion that social learning occurs through specially adapted neural mechanisms designed to mimic observed behaviour. But this is just one example of how our understanding of the mediating processes taking place within the brain have improved. While Watson considered relevant only the stuff going into the brain and the resulting behaviour that came out, increased understanding of what's going on in that black box of information processing sitting above our shoulders has now overtaken behaviourism as the dominant paradigm for understanding human behaviour. However, while behaviourism may no longer have the following it did during the mid-20th century, there's little doubt that both classical and operant conditioning are important elements of learning and behaviour. This is evidenced not only by contrived experiments, but also by the broad range of applications that have emerged as a result of more than a century of research into this field. These include conditioning programs designed to address mental health issues such as pathological anxiety and depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, and a variety of dysfunctional personality behaviours. Indeed, behaviour therapies have been helpful for many, many people and continue to be so with modern iterations spurred on by the cognitive revolution in psychology. Today, cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, is a gold standard non-pharmacological treatment for a variety of mental health issues, including post-traumatic stress. We'll address CBT more specifically in a future episode. As further evidence of the importance of behaviourism in our modern lives is the myriad ways in which influence tactics have been designed into technology to modify our behaviour. Social media applications, for instance, have thrived in large part due to their leverage of conditioning by shaping behaviour and positively or negatively rewarding desired or undesired behaviours. These influences are so subtle yet powerful that we are hardly aware they are taking place. With insightful prescience, B.F. Skinner described a utopian world where society was crafted according to principles of conditioning in his 1948 novel Walden II. Consider the following passage where Skinner writes, quote, we can achieve a sort of control under which the controlled, though they are following a code much more scrupulously than was ever the case under the old system, nevertheless feel free. They are doing what they want to do, not what they are forced to do. That's the source of the tremendous power of positive reinforcement. There's no restraint and no revolt. By careful cultural design, we control not the final behaviour, but the inclination to behave, the motives, the desires, the wishes. The curious thing is that in that case, the question of freedom never arises. End quote. Conditioning is such a powerful influence tactic because the behavioural response happens as if by will. We do not feel like we are being influenced. The recent documentary film, The Social Dilemma, articulates our algorithms carefully designed to capture our attention, subtly reward or positively reinforce our behaviour so we are compelled to spend longer and longer periods lost within our online worlds. It's somewhat ironic that the complex neurological processes taking place within the brain were considered irrelevant by John Watson, as it's these very mechanisms which have allowed the human population to become so easily and persuasively manipulated. 
Humans are a social species, yet for all of our cognitive sophistication, we are infantile in our susceptibility to subtle cues which threaten our social standing, our identity, or bolster our egos. Understanding how these information processing mechanisms operate is of great importance to understanding where these cognitive circuits help and hinder us. Behaviorism forms an important element in measuring the outward result of these processes, even though it tells only part of the story. With the advent of more complete understanding of these processes through developments in neuroscience, behaviorism did fall out of favor in the latter part of the 20th century. However, the mechanism of action which underpins both classical and radical behaviorism persists. If any doubt remains about the significance of behaviorism, one need only look to the many cognitive biases which have been popularized throughout society. What were once intriguing findings from social psychological studies are now popularized memes and uh, we're familiar with their names. It may appear counterintuitive that cognitive biases are behavioral, but the two are inextricably entwined. Outside influences act upon cognition, which leads to behavioral outcomes that we are scarcely aware of until they're pointed out to us. For example, when we observe the behavior of others, we tend to emulate it, leading to groupthink or anchoring. There's a fundamental attribution or framing bias, and also the halo effect. We are socially rewarded for compliant behavior. Our cognitive biases cloud our objectivity and rationality, so we behave in ways which are in response to environmental influences. Understanding both behavioral and cognitive aspects of human nature and how they interact then is crucial to forming a better understanding of who we are as a species and where our vulnerabilities lie. To conclude this episode, behaviorism can be considered materialist as it concerns only that which can be observed. Classically, this included a rejection of experience altogether, but even when taking cognitive elements into account, it is still reductionist as it attempts to explain human experience in terms of physical, observable behaviour. For the dualist or the idealist, behaviour may tend to neglect the essence of humanity, which is far-reaching philosophical consequences. However, the further down the materialist rabbit hole we go, the less important these seem to be. In the last episode, I invited you to consider whether there are any gaps in the explanation of human experience that cannot be resolved by a materialist philosophy. Behaviorism may fill many of those, and what's left can be taken up by the cognitive sciences, so we'll explore those in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.